Well, good morning. Come on in and have a seat. If you're new to our church, welcome. Uh, we're so happy to have you. And if you haven't done so already, outside uh, the sanctuary on the right is a welcome desk. We would love it if you would go there and let us know of your attendance here. And we have a gift that we want to give to you. Uh, so if you're new here, welcome. Uh, I often get asked, how do you find out information here about the church? And there are basically four ways that you can find out information. Uh, one, uh, they're scrolling announcements usually before and after the service. You could see them here in the sanctuary or outside in the narthex or whatever area we call that. Uh, you'll see that uh, on the PowerPoint. So those are some of the announcements. Second, if you're on our email list uh, throughout the week, you will normally get emails that will give information about what's going on here at the church, programs and other things like that. That's a second way. A third way is to go to our website. Uh, the Chapel, chap, I'm sorry, thechapelnj.org. Uh, on the website, you will find uh, a lot of helpful information. And then finally, if you're not familiar, we have a church app as well. Um, so if you go on the website under the resource section, you'll find out about the church app. On that church app, you'll be able to put prayer requests. You'll be able to find announcements, uh, calendar of events that are going on here at the church. And also, if you're in a group um, and the group post on that, you will be able to do that as well. So those are the four ways, the PowerPoint, the weekly newsletter, the um, the website and then finally the app so get involved in each one of those and you can get some information because there's no way we can go through all the announcements here on a sunday morning uh, yesterday we had an opportunity to celebrate the life of uh, les Clefman, and if you were here or if you watched online um, it was a time of it was a celebration it felt like a worship service to me i mean um, there was uh, there were sad things and the loss, but then there was also just this worship, and it was filled with great music. And we heard about Les's love for music. We heard about his love uh, for fishing and golf. Uh, we learned about his laughter, which we all knew about. Um, but we heard testimonies. He was eulogized by friends. He was eulogized by family members. He was eulogized by his pastor here. He was spoken well of, and so to eulogize means to bless or to speak well of, and that we clearly heard in Les's life. And there were three things that came out, and I'll just end with this. Uh, one, I heard a man that was purposeful in his love for people. Uh, whether it was people from high school, from his childhood, throughout his church ministry and his life, he loved people. And you heard that purpose come out of his life. And that was spoken well of yesterday. Second, we heard of his passionate love for Christ. Um, he loved Christ. Whether he was singing up here and playing, you could hear him sing and you could hear the passion. But then he would give his little pastoring things right in between. And so you could hear of his passionate love for Christ. So we had a man who was purposeful in his love for people, his passionate and his love for Christ. And then the last one was he was persistent in his hope that the people he loved would come to love that Christ passionately. That was a legacy. We sang a lot of great songs yesterday, but one song that kept going through my mind was this song by Steve Green, and it says, Oh, may all who come behind us find us faithful. May the fire of his devotion light the way. May the footprints that he leaves lead them to believe, and the light he lives inspire them to obey. Well, that was Les Clefman. So pray for the Clefman family, the Chiara family, 
Um, and those that have lost people here in our congregation as well, continue to pray for them. So let's pray this morning. Father, you're a great God. And we heard yesterday once again of a man who loved you because you're a great God. And he desired to passionately display you. Father, it was so good to be able to hear testimonies from his siblings about him. Testimonies from friends and those that he mentored about you. And over and over again, it just kept came coming back to the fact that he was a faithful man who loved you and wanted people to know you. So, Father, I pray that that would be a legacy for us. I pray that you would help us to do the same. Lord, I pray for our church. I pray for those that are new here. I pray that you would help them to feel welcomed and part of our congregation. For those that are old here, I pray that they would feel connected as well. Uh, Lord, I pray that this would be a place where we wouldn't just sing great songs and hear a message. I pray that it would be a place that would be like a family. Um, because you do things in creating vital relationships with us. So Lord, I pray that you would create that vital relationship with us and among us today. Lord, I pray for grief share. We're talking about the loss of less and those that have lost family members. Grief share begins this week. Lord, I pray for them. I pray that you would use that ministry in a powerful way to touch people's lives. Uh, Lord, I pray for that uh, ministry being used in um, uh, ministries in this area. Sue is going to be starting a group as well in this area. I pray for her as she does that. Lord, I pray for Tom Camella as he continues to heal. Father, I pray for him as he has been battling. Lord, I pray for Diana Kelly, I'm connecting with her this week, and just the struggles that she continues to have. Lord, I pray for her. I pray for Victor. I pray for wisdom for that family. Uh, Lord, I pray for Dave Mercer. Thank you that he um, has been healing up. He's been here at the church a couple of times over the last couple of weeks. Pray for his healing and restoration. Thank you that you brought John Whitehead through his surgery as well. Lord, today, this morning, I pray that we would see your son. I pray that we would have a passionate love for him and that we would be passionate that people would love him passionately as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
choose to praise, to glorify, glorify the name of all names, that nothing can stand against, and I choose to praise, to glorify, glorify the name of all names, that nothing can stand against, and I choose to praise, to glorify, your name. Yes, I will sing for joy when my heart is heavy all my days. Oh, yes, I will for all my days. Oh, yes, I will for all my days. Oh, yes, I Thank you. 
So 
for surrendering your life. Help us to surrender ours back. Lord, when the Holy Spirit's working within us and telling us, no, don't go there, help us to listen, stop, and obey. Lord, help us not to get in the way of you working in and through us. Bless Pastor Tim as he comes and preaches, Lord. May the Holy Spirit give him the words you'd have him to say. We give you all the praise and all the glory in your name. Amen. Amen. All right, good to have each of you here. I want you to uh, turn your Bibles to the book of Ruth, chapter 3. 
book of Ruth chapter 3, and then the, the young children can be dismissed for junior church. Okay, so K through 3 for junior church if you're new with us. You guys can turn to Ruth chapter 3. We're coming to the third part in this four-part series on this really uh, amazing book. has a beautiful name, doesn't it? My wife's name is Ruth, so <laughs> you all get that. So, uh, uh, yeah, I, I did want to say this. There were a number of folks that were involved yesterday in providing... Uh, the meals and uh, snack times during the afternoon. Uh, a lot of people, uh, Kathy has a, been blessed with a really good team of people. And a lot got done yesterday, a lot of hours. Uh, some people were here six to eight hours making sure that all those needs were met. The other thing that uh, I want to say is for those that have kind of been around us long enough to know about our getting this building and finally you know, getting it up and running and God's gracious provision in that, Every time there's an event like that and we're able to have the family be here and serve them, it, it just reminds us of the real blessing uh, that, that the facility has become for our church family to use and to see the work of God advance. So uh, just very grateful for that blessing. So Ruth chapter 3, uh, most of you know that my wife and I have three daughters and uh, there were a couple times along the way where I was uh, foolish enough to think that I was a matchmaker. And uh, I would try to direct them to individuals that I thought were worthy candidates uh, to become a son-in-law. <laughs> okay. well, I, I, I will report this morning that I was a complete failure. Uh, none of my plans ever worked. Uh, none of them. I was an abysmal... Uh, embarrassing failure. Well, the text that we come to today is a text about matchmaking. And uh, it's a very beautiful story that is heavy with truth that I hope will be a deep encouragement to your heart. I, I pray that above everything else, this text will serve to be a reminder to you of the depth of God's love, his loyal devoted love to you if you have trusted in Christ. And if you haven't trusted Christ, I pray that God's love will be through this account, this illustration, that it will become so clear to you that it will pull you past your reluctance to place saving faith and the love that is expressed through the cross of Christ for each one here this morning. So this account, chapters one and two, kind of I'll just quick set this background. We know that there was a, a famine in the land of Israel and that a man named Elimelech and his wife Naomi go to a place called Moab, which is a city of poor reputation. Soon Elimelech dies. Naomi becomes a widow. Her two sons marry and then they both die and the two wives, uh, Ruth and Orpha become widows as well. Okay, so it's a story that has a lot of tragedy and sorrow. The end result is that in the land of Moab, you have three women who live in vulnerable circumstances because in the ancient world, to be widowed was to be put in a very difficult and vulnerable place. And so this text 
ultimately works at resolving the tension that is present in widowhood in the ancient world, which was very much different than the world that we live in. Naomi hears in chapter one, uh, after her her son-in-law's die, or her sons die, and she has these two daughters-in-law that she feels some sense of responsibility for, Uh, she hears that there's food back in the homeland in Israel and she declares to them her intention to go back to Bethlehem and to find God's provision. She urges both of her daughter-in-laws to stay in the land of Moab in their home area and find a home. That is to find a mate and provision and protection. Okay, that's kind of the terms upon which Ruth or Naomi is ready to leave. Ruth begs to stay with her. She has fallen in love with Naomi herself and with her God. She loves Jehovah God and she, she proclaims to Naomi, I want your God to be my God. There was something in Naomi's relationship with Jehovah God that was attractive to Ruth and she could not bear the thought of separation. So Naomi uh, returns back to her hometown. And so now you have two widows in the city of Bethlehem in need of food and in need of family or in need of provision and in need of protection because those would be the, the, one of the primary functions that would be fulfilled in the context of marriage. Verse uh, 22 at the end of chapter one says, they arrived at the beginning of barley harvest. So Naomi hears there's a, a harvest, there was, there's been good weather, the, the famine has ended. And so she goes back with Ruth uh, decidedly in tow. But she feels a responsibility now for her. Chapter 2 then begins by telling us that when the harvest comes about, that Ruth, the daughter-in-law of Naomi, it goes out to glean, to, to pick up wheat on the edges of the field. So they did not have property since they were not married. They were destitute. And so the Old Testament had a provision that when fields were harvested, you would leave grain on the perimeters for those that were less fortunate. Ruth was one of those less fortunate people because of her status as a widow. And she goes out and she's gleaning. And verse three of chapter two says that she happened to come into Boaz's field. And it turns out that Boaz is a godly man. And you'll find in verses 11 and 12 that Boaz has heard of Ruth. He's heard of her reputation, the true nature of her character. And he literally in verses 11 and 12 prays a prayer over her. And we'll come back to that in a few minutes. Then we see that he provides for her in abundance favors of food and a meal so that when Ruth is going back home to Naomi that evening, Naomi is stunned by the amount of grain that Ruth has harvested, which automatically draws a question out of her. She's like, where did you glean today? Where were you harvesting along the edges? Because what you have garnered looks a lot more like a lot more than what you would find on the edges. And as you will remember, uh, Ruth tells Naomi about a man named Boaz that she met. He was the owner of the field where she was in her poor role, in her vulnerable role. She was gleaning and she met the owner of the field and they struck up a conversation. And this man prayed a blessing over her. And now she's returned home. That causes Naomi then to respond. 
in verses 19 and 20, she expresses of chapter 2. She says, where did you glean today? And Ruth said, the man's name is Boaz. Response, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Which is an odd statement, isn't it? Until you get context. So the question is, who is Boaz? Naomi said in verse 20, this man is a close relative of ours. And then this statement, one of our redeemers. Okay, now the function of a redeemer in Old Testament terminology was to rescue people from destitution and certain vulnerability and pain. And the idea of a family redeemer, sometimes in, I think in the King James, it was called a kinsman redeemer. It's a near relative who by God's ordinance in the Old Testament bears a responsibility for your provision and protection should you fall into hard times such as widowhood. And so the Old Testament regulation of what was called leveret marriage, uh, it, it required that if somebody was widowed, a near relative would become a family redeemer for the widow by marriage, they would rescue the widow from her vulnerable position by provision and would also raise up heirs for that family so that that family would become whole again. Now, all of that in the American culture sounds odd, right? Because we have, we have welfare systems, we have rights of survivorship related to Social Security. So if someone becomes a widow in our culture, they are not necessarily hugely exposed and vulnerable to abuse. There's a lot of protections in our culture. In the ancient world, in an agrarian culture where people were farmers primarily and almost only and exclusively, you would be left without provision and you would be left without protection. And so what Naomi feels a burden to do is to find a family for Ruth if Ruth finds a family, that will also lead to protection for Naomi, since they are in this close relationship as mother-in-law and daughter-in-law. Okay, so does that part make sense? So that's the background of this. And there's the introduction of this regulation, this, this, this mandate on the part of God for the nation of Israel, that someone close in the family would have the responsibility of care and protection for the one who was placed in a vulnerable position. So with that said, we jump into chapter three, because I think you almost have to have that background in mind, fresh to understand it. So chapter two ends by saying this, it says, Ruth lived with her mother-in-law, okay? Meaning in chapter two, what did she find? She found a lot of food. So that need was met, but what she had not found is a long-term family relationship, okay? And, and Naomi feels, if I get these names messed up, forgive me, just put the right one in place, okay? So Naomi feels a burden for the protection of this immigrant, this foreigner that has come into the nation of Israel. And as chapter three, it says, one day Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi said to her, 
my daughter. So you start to see the, the, the proximity and closeness of relationship that they feel. I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. Chapter two ends with what? A lot of provision. But what Naomi is saying is that provision is not all you need. To be protected, you need a family. Okay? So she finds food, plenty of it. It's no problem. But she lacks a family, and that lack is the tension of the text. How can Ruth, a foreigner from Moab, find a husband suitable who will care for her? Okay? That's the, the way this begins. So you'll see then that the text in verse 2 returns to the man named Boaz, in whose fields Ruth had harvested, and who happens to be a near relative of ours. In verse 2, she says, Now Boaz, with whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours. Okay, now that, that statement sets up the need for matchmaking. Okay, so Naomi feels a responsibility to step in to help Ruth understand the customs of the day that would lead to a family and protection for her and ultimately for Naomi as well. They're both in a desperate situation and they need someone who is trustworthy to stand up and to fulfill the obligations that are present. Okay, so there is first this intense need. So here's what she says to her in verse 2. She says, Boaz, with whom, whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours. Tonight, he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Okay, now the indication here is this. That this winnowing of barley and everything that Naomi's going to say tells you that the harvest is coming to an end. So the means of provision for Naomi and Ruth is about to come to an abrupt end because the harvest season is going to pass. So there's a window of opportunity that Naomi is conscious of. It's the end of the harvest and soon the end of opportunity. Boaz will be at the, the area where they winnow the grain. And winnowing simply means this. It means the put a pitchfork into the pile of grain, throw it into the air, the chaff would blow away, and what would remain was the harvest or that which was beneficial to sustain life. Okay? And the other thing that she notes in verse 2 is that Boaz is our near relative. He is a qualified deliverer or redeemer. Okay, so that that's kind of gives you the, the setting of this text. There is a place of intense need, but because of Boaz, there is also a glimmer of hope. It's beautiful, isn't it? Now we see Naomi's bold and daring plan as she strives to play matchmaker. So verse 3, she says to Ruth, wash, put on perfume... Get dressed in your best clothes, then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know that you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. And when he lies down, note the place where he is lying, then go, and these are now going to be things that you're going to be like, wait, what in the world does that mean? <laughs> okay? 
Watch what she says. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying, then go uncover his feet and lie down. Then he will tell you what to do. And the indication of that last statement is Boaz knows the custom of the day and he'll, he'll give you direction from that point forward. He'll let you know what is expected and what is supposed to happen. Okay? So there's this bold, daring plan. And, and the, this idea of, of washing and preparing is, is, is heavily laden with overtones. Okay? Related to marriage. Let me just say it in a slightly ambiguous fashion. Okay? But this idea of washing and moving forward is something that happens to David, King David, when his child died. He went into a season of mourning and then he washed and moved on from that season of grief. Okay? Same kind of picture. And Naomi is saying to Ruth, Ruth, it's time to move on from being a widow and to present yourself as an available bride. Okay? And, and as, as you think about that, there's a, there's a beauty in that. That Naomi is saying, Ruth, we've grieved the loss long enough. It's time to move out of that into the next very obvious step that Naomi is well aware of, but probably that uh, Ruth is not real aware of. Put your grief behind you. Present your best self. The idea is literally this. Act eligible. Okay? Go present yourself. And it's in the context of a relationship that Ruth had already stepped into back in chapter 2 with Boaz. Okay, so they know he did. So Naomi isn't sending her to a stranger. She's sending her to a family redeemer who has a sense of obligation. And out of faith, Ruth or Naomi moves in relationship to the Old Testament regulation. And Ruth clearly is willing to participate. Present your best self, act eligible as a bride. So the atmosphere is charged, okay? There are heavy uh, romantic overtones certainly that are present. If you dig into the words in this text, you'll find that it is a text that becomes incredibly powerful and maybe quasi-explosive, okay, in the best kind of way. It's interesting that she's told to be careful when she goes, to be discreet because women around the threshing floor in the ancient world would typically indicate some degree of inappropriateness and impropriety, perhaps even prostitution, okay? So Naomi says to Ruth, in this, you must be careful. Boaz is not the typical man, and we're going to learn that very quickly, okay? But you don't want to be perceived, Ruth, as the typical. And the idea is that if you're found wandering around looking available, which as she is attired, she certainly would, it could be misread. So she tells her to be discreet. And fascinatingly, in verse 4, she tells her, watch carefully where he lies because it wouldn't go well if you're laying at the feet of the wrong person. Okay? <laughs> Just kind of imagine that. Ruth's response is this, verses 5 and 6. I'm in. I'm in. She has already met Boaz. She now understands the 
the, the norms in the culture about how a widow is delivered from vulnerability and finds provision in family and her response before the God that she has pledged to follow in chapter two is, and chapter one is, I'm in. I'm in. There is no reluctance on this young lady's part. It is an act driven by faith in the fact that he is a family redeemer and it is tied to her commitment in chapter one. Your God is my God. His way is my way. And if this is the way that he resolves the tension in a widow's life, I am available. There's a bold and daring plan. Well, as you go to verse 7, you find that Boaz, reading along, has finished eating and drinking. He was in good spirits, and he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. The idea is most likely that he, he, he recedes to a secluded place. He's the owner. He's not... You know, hanging out perhaps with all the workers and yucking it up. He has a meal that is a celebration, in a sense, of the end of harvest. There's this kind of a beauty that's present. All the hard work has come to fruition, and he's laying beside the pile of grain. That is an indication of success. And for a man, that would, that would put you in good spirits in that time. Okay? And that's the idea of the text. He lies secluded. Ruth is, interestingly, watching and waiting. She's at a safe distance, but very observant and aware of what's happening. And then we see bold faith. It says, when he had finished and went over to lie down, Ruth approached quietly. We can kind of imagine this. This must be like a, uh, a little bit of a, of a creep, not a creep person, but just like when he's asleep, Uncover his feet and lie down. Now, if you've ever been around little kids and you're putting them to bed, right? And you're wondering if it's safe to get up or will their eyes open again, right? That's a very treacherous place. And I kind of kind of think, this happened with my wife. I'm, I'm, I'm listening to see if she's asleep. And what am I listening? I'm listening for breathing and any blinking. I'm looking for blinking, Okay. And that's where Ruth is here. She's full in on the game. And she wants to make sure that she dots every I and crosses every T appropriately. And so she moves in. In bold faith. In response to the providence of God that this man she ended up gleaning in his field. And he expressed appreciation and respect for her. And in this, she is presenting herself as a bride, not a date. In this, she is not seducing, but expressing a deep need and desire. It's very important that you, you understand the difference here. She comes not as somebody with inappropriate desires and wishes, but somebody with pure intentions and desires. Not seducing cheaply, but expressing faith boldly in God's plan and direction. And she does it in ways that are unequivocal. There is no ambivalence on Ruth's part. Okay? She's not testing the water. She is presenting it as a bride. And there's something very bold and deep in that faith. I imagine this picture as she 
walks up and pulls back the blanket off the feet and lies down. I imagine that she can probably hear her heart beating in her chest as she moves into this vulnerable position, simply trusting God. Verses 8 and 9 move us forward in the story. It says, in the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? This is one of those texts where you want to know the tone of this question, right? Was it loud? Was it accusatory? Was What? We know that he's startled. Right, Because the text clearly indicates that he's taken back by what's happening. He's, he's put off. Because in Boaz's world, it becomes very clear that everything was pretty much above board. And the way it should be. And Ruth is acting in this setting in the way it should be. But there is, there is this heightened sense. Now, Ruth or Naomi had said to Ruth... Go do that, and then you be quiet, okay? And just you just wait, okay? Meaning, Boaz knows the appropriate response if he is interested in receiving you as the bride you will be presenting, okay? But there's something about people with the name Ruth, right? That's my experience. No, I'm just kidding. Ruth, she, she's caught in the moment, and she can't shut her mouth. She is coming, presenting. Boaz acknowledges, and she, just, she doesn't wait for him to respond. That was the plan. What does she do? Look at verse 9. She says, I am your servant, Ruth. And it's very, very interesting that back in chapter 2, she called herself something more akin to a bond slave. But here she uses the word for a maid servant. And the idea is somebody that is that labors in the home but experiences the full orb of family rights and blessings. So you see what she's doing? She's moving from that place of vulnerability into a place of boldness because she knows the promise of God and she is trusting him. And it's beginning to transform her behavior. First, her appearance. She cleans up and moves on from the sorrow and grief of widowhood because at some point you got to do that. And then she goes and boldly presents herself, not seducing, but expressing a desire to become the bride to this man. Powerful account. What does she say? I'm your servant, Ruth. I've moved up. Spread the corner of your blanket over me. Which literally would mean something like this. The implication of that would be, Boaz, rescue me. (laughs) Save me from my vulnerable position in life. Now, it's very interesting When you go back to chapter 2 and you look at, in particular, 
verses 11 and 12. The first time Boaz and Ruth meet. Because the first time they meet, Boaz says to Ruth, once she's presented, he says, who is this woman? And they say, she's Naomi's daughter-in-law, the wife of one of Naomi's sons that died. She is an eligible widow who has captured the eye of Boaz, but there's something of her luck. Boaz doesn't jump in at that moment and get what he can get. He takes that into consideration. That, that rests on his mind, but he's been talking to people about her. And that becomes very clear from the text. So look at chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Boaz says, I am aware of all that you have done. But watch what he prays. He prays a blessing over her. He says, may the Lord repay you for what you have done. And may a full reward be given to you by the Lord. Now listen to what it says. Under whose wings you have come to find rest. I want you to listen to something. The same concept is implied in the words that are used. That that blanket being placed over Ruth would be symbolic of Boaz's reception of her. Okay? And it's fascinating that that's the same idea that's used back in chapter 2 when Boaz prays, may God bless you. And may God care for you because you've come to rest under his wings. So in essence, what is Ruth doing here? She's saying, Boaz, remember when we met and you prayed a prayer over me that I would be covered, redeemed, rescued. This is bold. She looks at Boaz and she says, be the answer. By God's design, be the answer to that prayer. You know what that says to you? It says, be careful about what you pray for. Okay. I mean, Ruth leans in on Boaz. And in the most beautiful and amazing way, she is saying, Boaz, you asked for God to bless me and protect me. Well, he's made a way for that to happen. And the way is you. There's something in this that you see Ruth taking God at his word. And she says to him, be my husband, care for me. And in all of that, she has gone completely beyond everything that Naomi said. Isn't that amazing? Folks, that's what trust in God will do to you. It will make you bold in laying hold of God's promises. It will make you bold in coming into rest under God's wings. You will flee to him expecting in great, bold faith that he's going to answer when you cry out to him. Now, it, it, it's, it's, it's fascinating to me that the ground of faith in this text is that a believer and a redeemer are meeting and Ruth expresses you are the redeemer that God has made available for us 
acts as our redeemer. Just a, a very beautiful, bold, and direct request that is laden with risk. Folks, do you realize that Ruth is a Moabitess? She's a widow. She's an outsider appealing to a rather high-level insider for favor, not for what she deserves, but for what God has promised through this person. And it makes her bold, not, not because of merit. Not The text makes no claim to Ruth being beautiful. Not, it says nothing about it. My experience is that Ruths are beautiful, okay? But this text, there's no illusion. Was it electric? Right? Was there chemistry? The text doesn't say anything. There are promises and commitments, and there is loyal love that is expressed here. Qualities that outlast the beauty that tends to fade over time for all of us. I stand here as a living representation of that. <laughs> Things change. You look in the mirror and say, I don't even know if I recognize that person anymore. Okay, here's the truth. The external things that tend to attract people in the Hollywood fashion don't last. They don't lead to provision and ultimately long-term protection and family. And Ruth comes not, not being sensual, but genuinely presenting herself as a bride in hopes that Boaz will say yes. You know, the text is fascinating. He does not hesitate. He says yes. The question is why? Well, if you go back to verse 10, it says that he noticed two things about Naomi or about Ruth of chapter 2. Or, or, I'm sorry, right here in, in chapter 10. He said, the Lord bless you, my daughter. This kindness, and the word kindness here is in the Hebrew, it's hesed, it's loyal, devoted love. It's commitment. It's not the flash in the pan. It's not chemistry. It's a, it's a commitment for the good of someone else. And Boaz senses Ruth's loyal love towards him. And he's stunned by it because he's going to say there were a lot of younger men in the venue that you could have chosen and that you would have qualified for. But you chose me. And, and, and as Boaz speaks about her, he speaks about her kindness, her devoted covenantal love, loyal, durable, lasting, and like God. Verse 11, he makes this observation. He says, and now my daughter... Do not be afraid. I will do for you all that you have asked, what she symbolized in this presentation. Because, why? Because all the people of my town know that you are a noble woman. Folks, what attracted Boaz to Ruth? Well, I know what the text tells us, right? That she is loyal in love and that she is noble in character. Boaz is focused on and driven at the deepest level by her character. And you can't help but realize in what he says about all the younger men that she could have played in that field but chose not to. 
which is another indication of her loyalty, her devotion. Boaz had, had served her in such a beautiful way, and she responds to that and says, would you be the one who rescues me and ultimately my mother-in-law from the deep distress that we find ourselves in through the circumstances that God has allowed. The indication of verse 11 is very clearly that Boaz and the other young men have been talking about Ruth. And they have noted that there is in her a unique character, a unique beauty, a deep inner beauty. And that is what he's focused on. The scene is intensely romantic. It's intensely uh, intimate. It's it's loaded with uh, powerful overtones. But don't miss this. It is also laden with purity and an understanding of what is appropriate in the moment. So Boaz says, yes, I will gladly, because of your character, choose to have a relationship with you, but... And look at what verses 12 and 13 say. And this, this is pure, this isn't Boaz saying, yes, let's do it. Let's run off and get married right now. Let's go to the chapel and get married. Okay? It's not what he says. He's a man who lives by the law of God all the time. It's his norm. He is trustworthy and diligent. Verses 12 and 13, he says to Ruth, he says, although it is true that I am a family redeemer, there is another who is more closely related than I. Meaning he has the responsibility first. But if he won't fulfill it, he says, stay here for the night. In the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good. Let him redeem you. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. And he says, lay here till morning. He is concerned for what is right above his own desires, which makes him so like Christ. Willing to pay whatever price it is in order for this to be done in the correct fashion so that Ruth and ultimately Naomi will be truly redeemed, brought out of their deepest sorrow and into the life that God has for them. A life where there is provision and a life where there is family. That is his ultimate desire. Verse 14 then says this, it says, so she laid his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognized. And he said, no one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. It's an interesting statement, isn't it? What that tells me is women coming to the threshing floor in Boaz's world was not the norm. But they lived in a time, the book of Judges says, the context for the book of Ruth, when everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And in that world, Boaz stood out as a man of particularly high integrity and knew that his reputation at some level through this circumstance was now at stake. And so what does he choose? Well, it becomes clear in the text that he's not choosing to enter into intimacy with her on that night. That becomes very clear. And he says to her, when you go, wait till light so that it's safe. Because a woman around the threshing floors at night, at that time of year, would implicitly be a dangerous position for a woman to be in. 
because it was a culture in which everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. Boaz takes a risk to tell her to stay till morning and then go home at the beginning of light, protecting her, protecting her reputation and his. Okay, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, an amazing statement. And then he says in verse 15, he says, hey, before you go, take the shawl that you were wearing and he fills it with writers debate how much grain he actually puts in, but it's between 50 and 70 pounds is the estimate of the amount of grain that he puts into this sack and places on her back and away she goes with food and now in tow the idea of family and proximity and protection. Think about that in light of the culture that you and I live in. Okay, think of a story where so much inappropriate could happen. If Hollywood did this as a movie, they would completely destroy the story. Because they would make it not about noble character and loyal love. They would make it about the chemistry and the electricity of the moment. Now, do I think that Boaz was attracted to Ruth? Okay, my answer is yes. Okay, I think he is physically attracted to her. I don't have a lot in the text that can give me that, but he noticed her in chapter two very clearly, picked her out of the crowd. But he is not letting his desires to interfere with the purposes and plans of God through his role as the family redeemer. And he honors it so highly that since there is someone else that's closer than him, he is willing to say, I'll wait. Better yet, I'll go to him tomorrow morning. Now, I wonder how that conversation went. Boaz meets with the other person that's more closely aligned in terms of family. And he begins to express to him that there's this lady who's a widow and she's I wonder if he, uh, I wonder if he exaggerates how costly this redemption will be, okay? Because he is obviously dearly interested in becoming the provider and protector of this woman. So he goes, he, he goes immediately and deals with it. First thing in the morning and finds out that he will be the man for Ruth. Verses 16 and 17, Ruth arrives home with this sack of provision, overwhelming provision, food waiting for family. And I, I wonder how well Naomi slept that night. What was that like? There's no text, no Instagram, no Twitter, no way to communicate, just waiting. My guess is that Naomi has circles under her eyes. I also suspect Ruth didn't sleep a lick because this moment and the fullness of that moment has completely captured her. You know, we live in a culture where this type of purity and this type of death is almost unthinkable and perhaps laughable. The desire for purity is, is, is perceived as odd 
The media and culture of our day sadly exalts the sensual, makes it the main thing. And the vast majority of scenes in terms of movies and entertainment-related things, almost every one of them occurs outside of covenant love and loyalty. There is this exaltation of the chemistry, this exaltation of the sensual. It's all over the place. And it is exalted and celebrated and treated as normal so that numerous popular shows in our culture celebrate a perversion of the gift that God gave us for provision and protection. And Ruth and Boaz stand out in the ancient culture where everybody was doing what was right in their own eyes. They stood out as an example of purity and waiting for God's plan and God's purpose to be fulfilled. Because folks, here's what happens. If you make sensuality and chemistry the primary motivation for pursuit, you end up destroying the values of provision and protection and family. Because you raise that experience to a level that it was never intended to hold. And when you do that, you destroy the beauty of God's divine intention in marriage. Because if you study scripture just a little bit in relationship to the physical relationship, intimacy between a man and a woman, which is obviously avoided in this text. When you study that, you understand that its purpose is to encourage permanence. It is meant to be adhesive in the relationship. It is meant to motivate fulfillment of the covenant till death parts us. And that is what gets tossed aside in exchange for something that cannot sustain a relationship. Why? Because it's not lasting. We live in a culture that seduces people to the sensual. And it is immediately attractive and gives immediate gratification, but denigrates the institution that God created for the survival of culture. And that's the home. That's why in verse 1 of this chapter, Naomi says to Ruth, you know what you need, Ruth? You need a family. You need someone to bring you into their home. And I think, I think it's interesting that she doesn't say, you know what you need, Ruth? You need a man. She does not say that. Some of you leaders are saying, yeah, I've, I've been on that road. Okay? She doesn't need a man. She needs a man who believes in God's purposes and plans through marriage to give her provision and to give her a safe place called family. And when you insert sensuality into that equation, you destroy the family and the provision that God intends. We live in a world that has been destroyed relationally, by the pursuit of the sensual, of the chemistry, and it is breaking lives apart. I beg of you as young people to guard your heart and to say, God, give me a passion for what you designed, for your intention. Don't let the sensual, the perverse that creeps all over the device in your pocket. Mine's over there. I set it aside so I could say that, okay? You have a device that introduces you to a perversion. It says that the sensual is more important than the permanence of commitment and marriage. 
And if you buy that lie, you will decimate and denigrate the institution that God provided for your provision and your protection and for his glory. I beg of you to understand what's at stake. I thought of this last night. I live in a world where the most watched TV program in history occurred about a month and a half ago, the Super Bowl. I turn off the halftime show because I know what to expect. And I'm never disappointed. The most, why over 200 million people watched the Super Bowl show and had shoved in their face year after year after year a lie that sensuality satisfies. You know what sensuality does? It makes you hungry. And you will satisfy that hunger at anyone's expense. And when you do that, you destroy the institution that God created you, man and woman, for. This is a text that says, there's hope for Ruth because there's a redeemer named Boaz who aims to rescue her. And folks, does that sound familiar? I'm going to conclude by saying this. This text ends with hope and excitement. It's electric, okay? In the best way. And I think, I think all the overtones of all the words that are used here are present, but there is this purity and beauty in waiting for the right context for the right purpose, so that the right outcome is achieved. Not I satisfy myself and you get what you want. Not that. But a desire to protect and help and assist the person in need. So I think in application, I will say this. First of all, we need to get serious about purity. And young people, I beg of you to not buy the lie of our culture that says that it's all about the immediate the sensual, and the pleasure. I hope you don't buy the lie. Secondly, I hope in this text that you see the amazing love of God for you. Because Boaz ultimately is a redeemer. And he points to a greater redeemer. When Naomi and Ruth heard about Boaz, Naomi sent Ruth, prepared. Go go after him. Find a relationship in which you find family and meaning and joy and all that God intends. The last principle I apply from this text is this. Redeeming always has a price. Always. But there's a difference between Boaz as a redeemer and Jesus as a redeemer. In fact, I would argue that the lesser redeemer, Boaz, points to the greater redeemer, Jesus. That Boaz's action that night in purity and self-sacrifice to do whatever it takes to have Ruth as his wife becomes a picture, a foil, ultimately through which I can understand the love of Christ for me. And hopefully through which you can understand the love of Christ for you. In this text, Boaz takes a risk. He assumes responsibility for Ruth and ultimately for Naomi as well and their offspring, not knowing what it would cost to redeem and to restore someone 
to whom I'm going to argue he was attracted. Who was noble, who was respectable, and through whom having a relationship with, he would surely benefit. Do you see the way that worked? Boaz saw Ruth, he heard of her character, he talked to other people about her. He found her attractive for the best reasons and pursues a relationship with her in spite of what it may cost. Let me give you the other redeemer. His name is Jesus. He does not take a risk. He makes a choice to lay down his life for rebels like us who are no prize, who will be unfaithful, but he rescues and redeems at great personal cost. Mark 10 says, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve by giving up his life as a freedom price, as a redeeming price for many. And in our saving, he takes outsiders. He takes rebels. And he makes them part of his family. Folks, let the beauty of that through this story settle in. Let the contrast of Boaz making a costly decision, a risk, contrast with the work of Christ when he came in a determined way to lay his life down for your saving. You know, you may be here this morning and you may think to yourself, am I beyond redeeming? Maybe you're caught in sexual sin and it just has you. Can I be delivered? Can I be set free? I want, to, I want you to know something. For every broken sinner here this morning, there is a redeemer who provided himself for you to bear the price of your sin and wants to make you part of his family. Not because he finds you uniquely attractive. Not because he looks at you and sees admirable personality traits and characteristics and virtues. But because he simply loves you. Knowing the full truth about you. And will bring you into his family. As a gift of his grace. In response to a simple request like Ruth made. Make me your bride. I have a need. You can meet my need. Make me your son. Make me your daughter. Bring me into your family. Provide for me and protect me until one day I'm in your presence forever. A permanent relationship. It's interesting, isn't it? Ruth and Boaz enter into a relationship that has long-term benefits, but an ending point. Jesus Christ calls us into a relationship in which merit matters nothing. And it's permanent. That's the glory of the gospel, folks. So I hope that as you read the story of Ruth 3, that you see the story that it anticipates in the person of Christ. And that the beauty of the story of Ruth 3 makes you want the greater beauty of the story of Jesus to be true in your life. Could you pray with me this morning? Father, as we conclude our time together in this awesome text, we're struck, God, we are struck by the beauty of it, by the romance of it, 
It's an attractive story, but it is so beautiful because it is laden with dignity and and purity and loyal love and commitment. And it's not about people getting what they want, but it's about finding what they need in your context and seeing your provision. And Lord, my prayer this morning is that if there's someone here this morning who has been wrestling with knowing that God loves them as son or daughter, I pray that God, they will see in this text that God's love is loyal, that it is unbreakable, and that they are family. And Lord, if there's someone here this morning who has heard the gospel numerous times, perhaps sitting in the chairs in this room right now, and they know that there is a need for life change, there is a need for a redeemer, I pray, God, that today they would see that for them there is hope. There is forgiveness. There is freedom from addictions to sexual things and other things. They will see that in Christ there is one who will buy me out of the slave market and make me his son, his daughter. God, make that clear and true and attractive for those here this morning. Lord, for that person that's struggling, that's listening and saying, God, this is what I need. I pray that you would draw them to come up and say, Pastor Tim, that's the need of my heart today. I need to know Christ. God, don't let us leave here unchanged. Let this story deeply affect us and change us by the spirit, I pray. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, Amen. amen.
Father, I just pray that you would lift all the burdens that are on our hearts right now, Lord, mine in particular. Help us to give this up to you, Lord. In Jesus' name.